Okay, you know where we are. We're still in Matthew 13. Go ahead and turn there. We have got just a couple more parables in this study of Christ's parables. And um, I am going to go ahead and pray for us, and we'll go ahead and get started. We've got a lot to talk about today. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, we are gathered in your midst today, Lord, to praise you for your glorious grace, for your majesty, your wisdom, as it is expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is wisdom of God, the power of God, as he, as your love was demonstrated in his sacrificial death, his, uh, his ransom that he gave, Lord, his sin-absorbing atonement. Uh, Lord, I pray that that this study would produce in us, our lesson today, a heart-warming devotion to Christ and appreciation for that blood which was spilt on that special day, the, the, the day that forever changed history as we know it. Oh Lord, I pray that you would come now and draw near to your people by your Holy Spirit. Illumine the text. Draw us unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Turn with me. We're in Matthew 13. We're going to be looking at verses 44 through 46. And let me get let me get one reader who can read this nice and loud for me. Nice and loud. You got that? Just read that whole section, brother. Yes, sir. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So here we have Jesus. He's continuing to unveil kingdom mysteries and secrets to his disciples and the multitudes in language that was truly hard to understand. That is why he designed to teach the multitudes in parables, so that they could not understand it. The mysteries were not for those who are outside the kingdom of God. Uh, Many were excited about the preaching of the kingdom. That was not a new subject, but the form, the teaching of it. Uh, This was truly new. They were excited about the powerful miracles which were being performed in their midst. Uh, They were even struck with the authority by which Jesus spoke with. Uh, We have the Bible tells us that the crowds gladly gather to hear Christ, to hear him, to listen to him. And I think a lot of that changed in Matthew 13. Uh, Where as a form of judgment, Christ turns from teaching straight propositional truth to Really a form of teaching, a literary device, which, uh, which veiled kingdom mysteries from those who were not elect to receive those mysteries, understand those mysteries. And certainly as Jesus taught, what they could gather did not line up with their expectations, either their eschatological expectations, apocalyptic expectations. And so in the parables we read, Uh, of some entering the kingdom by faith and others being rejected because of their unbelief. We learn that the kingdom has come and the wicked are not destroyed. Uh, We read that the kingdom is like a mustard seed and leaven. This would have struck the the consciences of the people in some some way to hear the kingdom being likened or compared to, uh, to a mustard seed. 
uh, to leaven in a, in a lump of dough that is virtually invisible, though it is here, and expanding. And now we learn that the kingdom is like hidden treasure and a pearl of great value. And these truly would have been kingdom mysteries indeed. And so the parables, even these parables, they play off of the underlying eschatological uh, overtones that we've been uh, reading and learning about in the parables that preceded this one. Um, that, that of the kingdom's invisible littleness. Uh, and here it talks a little bit, something about the hiddenness of the character of the kingdom in the present age. Uh, but now Jesus, he turns and puts less of an emphasis on the form and more of, of an emphasis on the value of the kingdom, of the value of the kingdom. The first couple of parables were really, we could say, they were about the scope of the kingdom. Uh, when you get into the, the parable of the leaven and the mustard seed, we're talking about the power of the kingdom, the invincible nature of the kingdom in the world. And here we could truly say that what Jesus is describing and putting before us, something about the nature of the kingdom is something of its value. It's inconceivable worth. It's like hidden treasure which must be discovered and a pearl that must be found and whose soul-satisfying benefits are to be enjoyed, are to be enjoyed right here and right now. So we just read over that briefly. But if you could for me, let me get something that works here. If you could find, I'm looking just for four things. There are many things that both of these parables have in common with one another. But if you could give me four things that both of these parables have in common, what would you say? That's true, right? They both had to seek or find. Um, I think we could probably, uh, I, I, I would say... They definitely had to give up something. What What else? What else do you see? Language of the field. Language of the field. So there's there's something of that here, right? Um, what else? Okay, that was one of the first things that I actually saw. I actually, so I would put this. If there was four things, well, if there are. Well, oh, oh, this one. Okay. So if there are four things in common, I would say that value, one, the value of the treasure of the pearl is recognized. Value of the treasure of the pearl was recognized. The value of the fortune is recognized. And that they had to seek it. They both had to seek after or they had to find it. Um, and I think what I put for this was they were firmly resolved upon finding it is that they were firmly resolved to make it theirs. For, firmly resolved to make it theirs. And like we just said, they gave up all. They gave up all. So we could say, Another thing was they sold, gave up all in order to obtain the fortune, in order to obtain it. And the last one, I know I'm, I write way too big. The last one 
is they obtained. They obtained the fortune. The value is recognized. If I could kind of summarize what I see as most important, there's some local color, you know, in here. There's going to, you know, some things like, you know, uh, some of the details that that really aren't to, they're not necessarily a part of the picture of the story. But if I were to summarize what are the most important things about both of these parables, it's all about value. It's all about what they find. And in their reaction to finding that which is most valuable in the world, they, va- they, rec- they recognize the value. They were firmly resolved, and that's going to be so important as we continue to talk about this, firmly resolved uh, to have it. And as a consequence, they had a radical reaction to finding that treasure. They sold and gave all, and most importantly, they obtained the treasure. And so we see here in verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven, uh, back in the text, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in the field, uh, hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now the question is, why would someone bury their most valuable possessions? Why? Mm. Thieves? Yeah. Yeah. To protect them. Right from thieves. Um, this practice was actually very common in Jesus's day. At that time, there wasn't a real reliable way of stashing uh, or hiding your wealth. Most people that had their money tied up in lands, they had their money tied up in possessions. Uh, but for those who had an abundance of money, they had coins. They would have jewels, right? Things like. Uh, 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 they, they had their, 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 their currency was in that form. One of the best ways to secure your wealth, your money, was to put it in a box and put it in the ground, was to hide it. Uh, you know, there's a, there, you know, you, you remember, this is so common. You remember in Matthew 25 that the master, he's handing out various amounts of talents to his workers, Right. He gives five to this, five to this. He gives one to the other man. What, what was wrong with the, the, the person who was given one talent? What do you do with that talent? He hid it. He put it in the ground. He put it in the ground to protect it, um, uh, to, uh, to make sure that he could, uh, to make sure that he could secure, that he would not lose that money. And so not only did, uh, did this, uh, was this a common practice uh, to protect your assets, yourself, um, but like we were saying, because of thieves, but uh, uh, they would also hide their wealth, their riches, because of war, right? Because of war. Um, as a people, a nation like Israel, they had experienced one war after another. Uh, and it was because of this that if they caught word of any army looming on the horizon, they would quickly stash their goods and put them in the ground. They might have a way, you know, five feet from this tree or like, you know, you know, they might have a way of, of, of knowing or marking where it is they hid their things because people were going to come in and loot and plunder and steal. And so um, this, this, is, this is often uh, something that people would do. And so because of that, some people, for one reason or another, maybe they died. Maybe they died in that war. Uh, maybe they forgot where they buried their treasure, which is common, right? It's just like you put it in a field and uh, you just completely forget where that treasure is. You don't ever dig up that treasure. Instead, someone else finds it, right? Someone else finds that treasure 
And so it wasn't uncommon for someone to stumble upon treasure. Uh, any questions? Any thoughts? Isn't that remarkable? Um, there is, uh, uh, it may be hidden on one's own land, for instance, and you not even know you've got treasure on your land, right? You just bought some property. You don't know what's in it necessarily if you didn't put it there. Um, one commentator said that under rabbinic law of a workman, a workman, a slave of a field who was possibly plowing, you know what a plow, plowshare, sometimes you get a mule and there's a, some kind of device and the plow, as it gets drug, it goes down even deeper into the ground, right? And sometimes that mule would be plowing and thump, right? It would hit something pretty hard. And they would think it would stop their mule and all their work altogether. They would go to dig something up and sometimes they would just run into treasure underground. So if that slave or a worker ever came upon treasure, if he came on that treasure in a field and he lifted it out, it would belong to the master. If he lifted it out, it would belong to the person who owned the field. Right? Right? He, would, he would claim whatever was found on his property. But here, the man is careful not to lift it out, even in this parable. He's careful not to lift it out uh, until he bought the field. Until he bought the field. He hit it again. That's what it says, right? And he hit it again. He was careful not to take it out. He left it there, and he can buy the field. He knows that if he could go to the person who owns the field, and if they don't know anything about it, they will rightly, if he, you know, with the right amount of money, sell him the field. They don't know what's in the field. He knows what's in the field. So it wouldn't be like an issue of legality at that point because the treasure doesn't belong to the man who owns the field, right? If he just freely sells the field. Um, so it isn't a matter of legality. It's, it's treasure hidden in the earth and no one knows it's there. And it, it is whoever, whoever uh, discovers the field and owns the field. It's, it, it would be theirs at that point. And so uh, it, it isn't an issue dealing with morality. You'd be surprised at how many people say, well, this is a very, in, uh, you know, an unethical, unethical situation, you know, going on here. But it really isn't about that. Um, since the, since the, the field was bought, he could have just taken the treasure and left. Uh, he could have just, uh, you know, he, he could have, uh, you know, but he actually took and sold all that he had in order to rightly buy the field and have access to all that was on the field. And uh, that treasure, uh, it, it's, it's worth every sacrifice. And those who know where the treasure lies joyfully abandon everything to secure it. Um, verse 45. Again, like the kingdom, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And he went and sold all uh, he went and, and, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let me know if you have any questions. Here we have an imparas, where we have the word for the emporium. A merchant who was a kind of a wholesaler, someone who was a trader, one who would diligently seek for pearls, other uh, things of antiquity, like antiques and things like that. They would search abandoned barns, warehouses, Go to estate sales, help, uh, hoping to find unclaimed treasure, overlooked treasures. And so after finding, they would then try to turn around, make a profit, you know, of the things that they had bought, the things that they had found. Uh, their pearls were in some way equivalent to our diamonds today. Um, the only, what's that? In value. In value, yeah. 
they were they were somewhat equivalent. The uh, the only difference I would make is that more people have diamonds today than people had pearls then, right? It isn't necessarily so difficult to come upon a diamond here, depending on size, shape, purity, you know, all those different factors. But it wasn't often that you came upon a pearl. Um, not a lot of people have them. John MacArthur, he says, pearls were the most valuable gem available at that time in the world. And if you had pearls, you had a fortune. If you had pearls, you had a fortune. It said something about who you are, who you were. Um, turn with me to First Timothy two nine. Let me know if you have any questions. I know we're just kind of getting into the facts of this. First Timothy two nine. Pearls really were they were the bling of the day. They were. First Timothy two nine says, uh, speaking about women in this in Paul's instructions, he says, likewise I want women to, to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and girl and gold and pearls or costly garments. In order to to demonstrate wealth today, we might array ourselves with big, pure diamonds, but in this period, pearls were an extravagant way of displaying one's wealth. It's an extravagant way of displaying one's wealth, their status. And we should not be dressing ourselves in order to communicate to other people how much money we have. That's pretty much what's going on here in First Timothy. We should not be dressing ourselves in order to communicate our status, how much money we have, our wealth, our position, authority, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, another way you see pearls in the New Testament is when it's spoken about Divine truth. Because of its treasured value, Jesus, he likened it to divine truth. He likened it to the gospel. You remember what he said, even in Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not give what is holy to dogs. And what else does he say? And do not throw your what? Your pearls. You see that? Do not throw your pearls before swan. Uh, even gospel truth was so precious. It's treasure. It's likened unto pearls that we see. In other words, do not give what is priceless to the worthless, is what he's saying there. If you were to define and describe the point of this parable, or both of these parables, they have the same point. Jesus often, he taught in pairs in order to drive a point home, bring a point home, which is why you see you know, the wheat and the tares, the dragnet, you know, uh, where you see the, the leaven and the mustard seed. And here you have both of these. They hit on the same exact point. And Jesus would do this to, to drive a point home. If you were to define or describe the point of these parables, how would you describe the, the, the spiritual truth that is being conveyed through this parable? Yes. Right. That's good. That's good. Very good. Anything else? What it will cost you, right? Yeah. 
kind of denying yourself, right? It teaches us something about that. That's definitely our response to the treasure. What else? What else would you say? I think all those things are right. Uh, those are all bits and pieces of this. Um, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because the treasure was right in front of them, wasn't it? You know, you have uh, you have that even in even in First uh, Corinthians, for instance, where where the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. The them are the spiritual things. And it says they are spiritually appraised. The them and the they are the same thing. They are spiritually appraised. The spiritual things are spiritually appraised, meaning they can only be rightly valued with, with the right heart. They can only be right, rightly valued with uh, with someone who has been given eyes to see until you are born again. That's what, isn't that what it says in John 3, 3? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see. Isn't that incredible? The kingdom of God. And, 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 and even in 3, 3, I think it says that he cannot enter the kingdom. Those are both activities of faith. Seeing and entering the kingdom, uh, those are things that those who are, those who are spiritually uh, who have been spiritually awakened and regenerated have the ability to exercise sight and faith into spiritual things. Uh, I put here, it is not, the point of this parable, it is not an unfair trade to give up all that one has in order to, to take possession of the kingdom. It is not an unfair trade. There is never any regret felt in a trade-off where one gains more than what he gives. That's what's happening in the kingdom of God. You are gaining more than you are giving. And implicit in this text is the stated greater value of the treasure in comparison with anything else in existence or anything else that you possess. The kingdom is more valuable than anything. Accordingly then, preferring the world or anything to the kingdom is the height of sin. It is the height of folly. It is the height of madness. Preferring anything to Jesus Christ, his kingdom, his kingship, his lordship, eternal life, salvation is the height of sin. Preferring anything to God and what he gives. Who here would give your eyes? You know, uh, who asked this question? Ray Comfort. You're like, I've heard of this. I know where he's going. Who would give your eyes for a million dollars, you know, as he says? Would you give your eyes a million dollars? You know, oh, he says it here. Oh, yeah. That was more Irish, Ray. Uh, for a million dollars. Who here would do that? Who would give your, your ability to see for, for if someone could hand you, you know, a lump of cash? Not many. I'm hoping not many. I'm hoping not many. Uh, venturing, not many. Because your eyes are valuable. Your eyes are valuable. You, you, you really wouldn't put a price on them. They're so valuable. How much more your life? How much more your life? And yet, uh, your life is worth losing in order to gain the kingdom. It is worth losing in order to gain the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is more valuable than your life. 
It is more valuable than your life. He compares it to treasure. And one cannot rightly conceive of anything of greater value um, than the kingdom and eternal life. Uh, The inestimable worth of the kingdom, it overwhelmingly outweighs all things put together. Overwhelmingly outweighs all things put together. Right? We believe that to be true, but we don't always live like that's true. When you put all your things together, all your stuff together, all my stuff, sometimes I don't live consistently. And uh, when we when we understand the truth that the kingdom of God is incomparable, it is unparalleled in its glory, its beauty, and value to anything else that exists. And when we prefer sin, we're saying, I would rather have this this. Uh, this limestone to this diamond. Uh, when we prefer sin, it's when we were we are rather we are preferring something of lesser value to something of most value. Um, any questions on that? Yeah. 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 The dangers in parables, you know, it, it really understanding parables, like I said, it really depends upon your theology, how you're going to interpret the 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 the, 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 the parables, um, are going to be so affected by what you believe already, uh, the theology that you hold to. If you have, if you have, uh, you don't have, I don't think you have to be an Arminian, but if you do, if you are an Arminian, you know, there, you take this parable, and this is not a, a true understanding of it. You take this parable of, you know, finding a pearl or a treasure and leaving all to gain it. Some people would say, this is Jesus Christ coming out of heaven, giving up all he has in order to come down and gain the treasure. Which, of course, then it would be placing more of the value on the person than the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It would be more valuable. That the, uh, possessing this person is more valuable than the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. If that's the, if that's, if that's the interpretation. How, like your theology will greatly, af- greatly affect how you interpret these. Um, like prosperity. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you believe you will you will come at this at that angle you'll come at this at that angle you know if you're you know the the the, the, the early church fathers were terrible at this which is that they uh they allegorized everything allegorized everything and so you you can see where uh you know you have to be careful that you you stay in the confines if jesus already gives it uh if jesus already gives it um, some kind of explanation, you don't need to add any explanation of your own. If Jesus gives it, 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 that's all it needs, it's sufficient. Now, there are some where he just doesn't necessarily give a clear explanation, but we have to be clear to stay in line with what the Bible teaches about uh, about Christ. We have to, we have to go with uh, entering the parables with sound doctrine and making sure they're not teaching anything contrary to Scripture. Mm. And it's debated, yeah. 
Yeah. I would I would I would go towards I would go towards saying that's not a parable because the people's names who are used in there are often used throughout antiquity to refer to Lazarus to refer to just a poor man who is poor. And um and so uh you, I think you just have to be careful. You just have to be careful. Don't allegorize the text. Just try to stick to the meaning as as close as possible. Understand the content around it, uh, the context around it. And if you can do that, then you can you can rightly understand and interpret exegete the content that's there with uh, you know the surrounding atmosphere. So uh, moving on in this sense, when we talk about the kingdom and its value, its worth. Um, it's synonymous to something else when we talk about the kingdom. What else is the kingdom synonymous with? What is it? Salvation. With salvation. The kingdom is synonymous to eternal life. Turn with me to Mark 9. Go with me to Mark 9. Um, since these terms are synonymous... In one sense, not only is the kingdom of God represented as God's reign, but it is also represented as God's realm of redemption. His realm of redemption, his realm of salvation, it is a gift that is bestowed or inherited. Uh, Mark 9.43, it says, And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life. That's the language of entering the kingdom. Entering life. Uh, it goes on crippled, crippled, uh, enter life crippled, then having your two hands to go to hell into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God. You see that? There's a parallel right here where they're they are practically synonymous terms. It is better for you to enter life, enter life. And in this last verse, he uses enter the kingdom of God. Enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. The treasure of the kingdom embodies everything that is of eternal value. Our justification, sanctification, glorification, ultimately our redemption. Those blood-bought blessings that demonstrate the love, the peace, the grace, forgiveness, the friendship that we have with God that are extended to those who relinquish all in order to enjoy them, in order to have them and obtain them. I have a lengthy quote I want to read. Any questions on that? It's, a, it's glorious. This is, it's a glorious topic. Uh, Jesus' offer of the kingdom entailed personal, spiritual, eternal salvation itself. George Ladd, he defines this aspect of, of, of Christ's kingdom well. He says this, The mission of Jesus brought not a new teaching, but a new event. It brought to people an actual foretaste of the eschatological salvation. Jesus did not promise the forgiveness of sins. He bestowed it. He did not simply assure people of the future fellowship of the kingdom. He invited them into fellowship with himself as the bearer of the kingdom. He did not merely promise them vindication of the day of judgment. He he bestowed upon them the status of present righteousness. He not only taught an eschatological deliverance from physical evil, but he went about demonstrating the redeeming power of the kingdom, delivering people from sickness and even death. 
This is the meaning of the presence of the kingdom as a new era of salvation. To receive the kingdom of God, to submit oneself to God's reign, meant to receive the gift of the kingdom and to enter into enjoyments of its blessings. Wow. So much there. And all of this is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Messiah. It's all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus himself. And many of you understand how great this treasure is. When you stumbled upon this pearl in the hearing of the gospel, and then, like never before, the supremely preciousness of Christ, didn't it emerge in your heart and in your mind when you believed in the gospel, when you clung to him with all of your heart, believed upon him, And all things in this world became as trash in comparison to the Lord Jesus, your treasure. All things. All things. Jonathan Owens, he said, it's my time. John Owens, he says, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live, hereon would I dwell, herein would I die, until all thoughts here below, all things here below become as dead and deformed things, no longer in any way calling out for my affectionate embraces. Just beholding the glory of Christ made all things look dead in comparison to his surpassing value, in comparison to his surpassing worth. Um, how shall we describe it? I was reading, yes, sister. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. Amen. I was actually just about to quote that. You beat me there. That's good. You know, just to give you. What is the, you, you, you see the response. What, how are we thankful? And I was, reading, I was reading such a wonderful book by Thomas Vincent. The, the true Christian's love to the unseen Christ. An old Puritan. He describes this salvific encounter of Christ who um, has made himself known to sinners in such a way as to um, change uh, their very person, to make them new. He says, And does this lovely, beauteous one, the fairest of ten thousand, this most excellent and altogether lovely person, bear a special love to me, to such a vile worm as me, to such a dead dog as me, to such an undeserving, ill-deserving, hell-deserving sinner as me. Oh, what marvelous kindness is this! What infinite riches of free grace! Does he know me by name? Has he given himself for me and given himself to me? And shall I not give him my heart? Am I written in his book? redeemed with his blood, clothed with his righteousness, beautified with his image? Has he put the dignity of a child of God upon me? 
and prepared a place in the Father's house for me. Oh, how wonderful. Oh, how astonishing. What shall I render unto him? What shall I render unto him? What, what shall we render unto him? This pearl of great value. What, how do we respond? You tell me. What is the response? Amen. Amen. They responded with that change of mind and did something about it. Amen. Amen. Willing to surrender all. You see, they gave up all things. Um, It's the glorious value of Christ that appeals to the eyes of faith. It's his value that appeals to the eyes of faith when God grants that you exercise it and wrap it around that glorious uh, image of Christ, that portrait which, which Scripture paints for us. And it is the desire to be with Christ in his kingdom that will elicit a desire for sacrifice. He's valuable. If he's valuable in your eyes and you desire him, you will make a sacrifice for him. And it won't be a burden. It will be, even what he says here, and from joy. And from joy is what it says. Matthew 13, verse 44. And from joy over it he goes. From joy. Not necessarily for joy, of, of, what, of, of the joy that will be uh, received by going and selling everything, though that's true. But it's from joy. It's not a burden. You want to lay down your life. You want to go sell all your things and get that field. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get that field. Uh, it's one that you don't want to pass up. Um, everything you have is going to pass away. You're going to die. As Amelia says, you can't take a, you never seen a U-Haul attached to a hearse. Right? Jim Elliott says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. In order to gain that which he cannot lose. But ask yourself this, what hinders this man from giving up all he has? What hinders him? What's that? No, this man. This man. And here, yeah, uh, Matthew 13 in the parable. Sometimes for us, right? But what about the man in the parable? What hinders him from selling all that he has? Nothing. There's no hindrances. Uh, it, it's because it's from joy. It's something he desires. His disposition has been changed. Nothing hinders the enthusiastic liquidation of all that he has in order to gain the kingdom of heaven. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was hindered, greatly hindered. Why was he hindered? Right. Because he had a man, he he was a man of great wealth, wasn't he? Wasn't he sad? Because he had so much. That's right. But if you give your life, you will keep it. You give up all things. There's more promised in giving your life than in keeping your life. Any questions on that? 
That's good. Uh, we have a little bit of time here. You know, there's a passage that says that, there's a passage even in Matthew 11 that says that the, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. The violent take it by force. There's been different translations, different interpretations of what that means exactly. Uh, but I take an interpretation, even Jonathan Edwards, that, that, that the kingdom of heaven is not suffering violence by evil men. They are not taking the kingdom of heaven by force. I don't necessarily hold that position. There's, but uh, there's, there's, there's differences of opinion in that. But it does have, it does have uh, a parallel in Luke 16, 16. And it says this, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Everyone is forcing his way. That's the parallel to that verse in Matthew 11. And it makes me think that the kingdom of heaven is going to come. And it's going to come triumphantly, just like the mustard seed in the world. Just like the leaven in the dough. Though the dough is huge and the leaven is small, it's going to conquer each piece of dough. And it's going to completely fill the world. The glory of God will fill the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. And... The kingdom of heaven is going to come and there is a radical reaction to be exercised. There must be violence exercised if you must enter the kingdom of heaven. The violent take it by force. Men force themselves into it when the gospel is is being preached. What, What do you see about the language of violence for salvation in the New Testament? What can you think of? Like the, so, the Bible speaks about entering salvation, or uh, it talks about the the seriousness of 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 exercising salvific violence in some sense in order to enter the kingdom, right? Yes, I was trying not to say everything. So there is loss, right? I think of now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Uh, uh, yeah, what do you got? Of his flesh, right? Mm-hmm. Right, even the passage we were just we were just mentioning. If your hand causes you to stumble, right, take a saw to it and cut it off. Yes. 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 Or, or where Paul said, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. All right, it's the Spirit's power, but it's your work. If you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Paul said, I even buffet my body. I make it my slave. Less possibly, that means for fear, possibly, that after I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. I run, I box, I exercise self-control and discipline my body in order, uh, in such a way as not to disqualify myself from obtaining, inheriting the eschatological prize at the end of the race. 
And um, I'm going to kind of end. Any, anything on that? Yes. I was a darling sin. Amen. Um, we need to labor to see the value of the kingdom. If you labor to see the value of the kingdom, it will change the way you live. Change the way you live. You'll never exhaust the, the, in that labor, that work, by the way. Because Christ is so valuable and hidden in him are all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You'll never out uh, exhaust uh, the wealth and the knowledge and the glory, the treasure that we find in Christ in his kingdom. And so if we understand, and I'll end with this, the treasure that is to be gained, and we have gained it, we should want to extend that knowledge, the knowledge of that treasure. We should want to extend it so that others might experience its value in their soul. Right? Let your neighbor experience the treasure of the king and his kingdom. The nations, the treasure of the crucified king we worship. He is so valuable. He is worthy of the pouring out of our lives, the giving up of all things, in order that those who do not know him might know him. Amen? Amen. Let's go to worship.